Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Well, ladies and gentlemen, greetings, good afternoon, and welcome to the afternoon session on day one of Communities in Control 2017. My name is Brett Dehoot. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm going to facilitate the next hour of conversation aimed at, well, I suppose, enlightening you as to how to engage the population, the great unwashed out there, and create positive social change. Special welcome to our people at the cabaret-style seating at the front, cheap seats at the back, you're welcome too. Um, it is a joy to be here. I have been involved in every single Communities in Control conference since it began. It is my, it's an annual milestone. It is my North Star. I have told Kathy and Dennis many times over, there is nothing that will stop me being here. And indeed, I have been here very, very ill. I have um, said no to high-paying corporate gigs to be here. I have postponed elective surgery to be here. <laughs> Which is why I was surprised last year when I received a long and halting voicemail from Dennis explaining that there would be no Communities in Control conference for 2016. This surprised me. And, uh, but I said, look, let's make the most of it. Let's meet for lunch, perhaps, and we can get together. Still nothing came back from Dennis. Days later, I got a text message saying, no, don't turn up at our office. We're really busy. It's best that you're not here. I was confused. But isn't it just great to be all back here together again for 2017 for the first time in two years? Excuse me. Alan, I'm talking. I'm sorry, Alan, I couldn't quite hear you. Whisper in my shell-like ear once more. There actually was a conference last year without me? Pop quiz. Who attended Communities in Control 2016? Get out! Thank you. That extravagant gag was brought to you with the assistance of Alan Matic, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Alan. Well, we are here. And I was shunned last year, but I'm back. You know why? I'm desperate. And it's showbiz. So we're back. We have an hour to talk about creating change, getting people involved from the grassroots up, because people allegedly have the power. Five panellists join me on stage. In no particular order, I'd like to introduce them to you. What they won't be doing is the eight, five, 25 minutes each before taking your questions. After I briefly introduce them, I'm going to throw some questions and issues at them, and you too will ask your questions and share your wisdom. We have three microphone runners out there on the floor. Rodney Croom joins us. Rodney, make yourself known to the audience. Rodney has been a, an advocate for LGBTI equality for almost 30 years, and he has a small cult following located at Table 4. He led the successful campaign to decriminalise homosexuality in Tasmania, which was utterly remarkable because that was a different era in terms of our social milieu. Indeed, it was almost a different age. And he was the founder and national director of Australian Marriage Equality until last year, so it proves that it was just a phase you were going through. He was made... Thank you. That's... Think about it. He was made a member of the Order of Australia in 2003 and was Tasmanian... Australian of the Year in 2015. Please make Rodney very welcome. One thing I know about marriage equality is we need a plebiscite to have it. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are in favour of marriage equality, raise your hands and say aye. aye. Motion carried. We can all get on with business. 
I did that on behalf of two gay male friends. One's a caterer and one's a civil celebrant. So anyway, Dr. Sonia Hood joins us. Sonia, make yourself known. Dr. Sonia Hood, CEO of Community Hubs Australia. Who knows Community Hubs Australia? They are an interesting beast because they are everywhere across the nation. They might not have the public profile that one would expect, which is interesting. I'm going to investigate that. In my words, not Sonia's, um, Community Hubs Australia creates hubs, gatherings of women who are socially, culturally, economically isolated. Those hubs take place in schools across Australia where good things happen, job skills, life skills, social connections. Sonia's worked in the US, UK and Australia, always one step ahead of the law. I am currently um, developing a website for Community Hubs Australia. And I don't usually swear in presentations, but I'll have to make an exception here, Sonia. At the first meeting, I said, Sonia, this is terrific. You're taking the opportunity to really up your digital communications game. Um, you know, big opportunity. And she said, I know, Brett. This is very important. Don't F it up. <laughs> and so with those words ringing in my ears, we've set forth on an exciting collaboration. <laughs> I'm not making that up. Luke Hilakari joins us. Luke, make yourself known to these people, comrade. Secretary of Victorian Trades Hall Council, working with some of the, uh, some of the workers in our economy at the lower end of the socio-economic scale under the banner of We Are Union. And um, you've had some pretty high-profile media success with some hashtag-based campaigns and physical actions and appearances in Parliament that upset Malcolm Turnbull's day. We'll talk about that later on. And afterwards, Luke, I believe you'll be leading a wildcat action and taking half the conference goers out of the room. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, Katerina Gator joins us. Katerina, make yourself known. Katerina is the founder and CEO of Climate for Change, sometimes known as C4. That's the numeral C. Is that right? That is so modern. <laughs> Honestly, I can barely get my head around it. It's a non-profit, some staff, volunteer-driven. And their flagship uh, campaign is Conversations for Change, which are conversations a couple of hours long that take place in people's homes. A bit like Tupperware sales, but without the plastic, as you say, Katarina. And the idea is to have a, quote, transformative conversation, sort of face-to-face, human-to-human, House by house. We will see how well this model works, Katerina. Lovely to have you here. And by the way, the standards that Katerina places on those two-hour meetings in people's homes are pretty high. If all attendees at the parties don't flush their car keys down the toilet and walk home, it's declared a failure. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Matthew Phillips joins us. Matthew. Make yourself known to us, seasoned. You're described as a seasoned campaigner. You've self-described. You're I grizzled. You're, no, you didn't self Well, who described you as seasoned? It makes you seem old and burnt out. But you are fresh and hungry, are you not? He's the human rights coordinator at GetUp. You know all those emails that are in your inbox unread? They're from him. That is such an easy gag, Matthew. I apologise. But it got a laugh, so I'll be using it again. He's leading the No Business in Abuse campaign, which targets corporate involvement in mandatory detention because it's very lucrative for some corporations out there. You know, corporations we've probably all dealt with today in one means or another. And um, you're also a bit of a, a hashtag activist with the hashtag, hashtag let them stay, which aims to prevent the deportation to Nauru of asylum seekers. I haven't used that hashtag. I'm more of a hashtag I stand with Chappelle or... Hashtag One Direction, I miss you. So, <laughs> ladies, don't we? I think I speak on 
behalf of all of us here. Ladies and gentlemen, please make our five panelists very welcome. All right, Five Brains, real campaigners. They have made change happen. They're very happy to take your questions. Don't be shy and don't make the classic mistake of leaving it for the last minute. It will come and it will go. Let me throw to the panel, anyone and everyone, in for your chop. It is easy to categorise this era as one of great self-interest and narcissism and selfies and consumerism. Is there actually an appetite among real people, not the people in this room, bunch of lefties, real people outside this room to get involved and create some social change. Folks, over to you. Okay, next question. <laughs> I have some thoughts on my question. Sonia, um, try not to swear. I, I'm going to try my hardest, but I can't promise. Uh, my, my opinion is absolutely there's huge appetite for change and huge appetite for change on the ground. And actually, uh, so we, we have 70 sites in, or we will have 70 sites by the end of the year in uh, three different states. We work with migrant and refugee women and preschool children. Um, our latest uh, hubs are opening in Ipswich, which is Pauline Hanson heartland. And we've been greeted there like the second coming. People are genuinely pleased to be welcoming um, refugee and migrant women to help them learn English, to help them uh, understand our school system, to help get their kids school ready and to help uh, them on volunteering or job pathways or whatever they want. I am co constantly amazed by the generosity of people with their time um, and with their goodwill. Because to make those hubs happen, you need support of schools and policymakers, and so you've got to persuade people that there's a need for it. Absolutely. And uh, so we sit in primary schools, uh, state and Catholic primary schools, in three different states. We're funded by philanthropy, by the federal government, uh, by state governments. Nobody in their right mind would have started up a system like this that had that much bureaucracy. But it works because at the ground there are people who understand the needs of their community, they can connect services with people in their communities, and if you move all of the bureaucracy and nonsense out of the way, people can get, generally get things done. And when you ask in a community, can people come along and help uh, with volunteering on whatever form that is, generally speaking, people come. The, the, the default reaction to people, to new arrivals in this community, is generally to welcome them, not to hate them. That doesn't play well in media, but it plays very well in community. Katerina. Um, yeah, so I mean I would agree from our experience that there is definitely an appetite to get involved in many levels of campaigns, but I think I wanted to draw on some research. I'm not sure, is, ha, can I have a show of hands who's um, familiar with the Common Cause work? Not that many. Okay, so I'll, I will explain it then. Um, I, th I think it was at least 30 years ago um, there was some research done on people's values across about 60 different countries and cultures um, and overwhelmingly it found that um, over 70% of people are motivated by intrinsic or unselfish values. Um, and interestingly enough, um, that research has been um, repeated again just, I think it was last year or the year before, and I think it was 74% of people are still motivated by those values across all, you know, almost many, many countries and many, many cultures. Um, and overwhelmingly, um, it, it really shows that the majority of people do care and they care um, about making the world a better place. We, we are generally motivated by the same things. Um, but interestingly, that research also showed that 78% of people believed that most people were selfish. <laughs> um, and this creates actually a huge problem because... Um, there's a phenomenon called pluralistic ignorance, which is a terribly ugly name, to describe the idea that 
people all think one thing, but they think everybody else thinks the other thing, and so they don't act on or stand up for the thing that they believe in. And so you might see that if you go to a party and you see, you hear a, a racist or a sexist joke, and you sort of, instead of standing up for it, you sort of think, oh, I must have, everybody else is laughing or nobody else is objecting, so it must be me who's misunderstood the joke, and so we don't stand up for it, but everybody else is having the same thought process. Um, and the research shows that when people think that other people um, aren't motivated or when they think that other people are selfish, they don't get involved as much. So it creates this cycle where we don't do the things we want to do and we don't believe in. So I think one of the huge antidotes to that um, is just to actually um, let people... Is, is to be one of those first people who stands up and does something, but also to let people know that they're wrong in those assumptions. So the research also shows that as soon as people are shown that that's not true, um, that that's how you break that cycle. So um, the other part of that research also talks about, um, you know, our value... We, we might be predisposed to key values, um, unselfish values, but we can be primed at any one moment to act um, with selfish values. So it's not like we all have... You know, some people have these values and some people have those values. Um, we all actually have the whole gamut. Um, you know, I, I can be motivated by power and status and wealth, um, although I'm not generally predisposed to do that. But if I go to a shopping mall um, with lots of sale messages, I can be motivated that way. And equally, perhaps Donald Trump <laughs> could be motivated more selflessly if he went for a long walk in nature. So different things, um, that, that might be a bit hopeful, but um, <laughs> different, um, <laughs> different contexts can prime different values. And I guess in our society at the moment, we do have a lot of marketing messages that mean that even though we might be generally predisposed to be selfless in our behaviour, um, we are constantly being primed the other way. So it's also really important in our work to try and counter that and not be sucked into the idea that we have to talk to those selfish values. Katerina, I don't think Donald Trump has experienced nature or, no. or, or, or <laughs> walking, even walking is beyond him. <laughs> and I must say, I'm, I know that research exists about our common values and being very positive, although there's a lot of evidence that in behaviour, people act differently to how well, that, they respond yeah. to service. And Donald Trump's election, you know, mm. the majority of women voted for Donald Trump. Madam. Thank you. Um, I think that was a really interesting point. Thank about, you. Um, about <laughs> the, oh. both, both of you, both of you. Um, yeah, in terms of the, the core values being um, positive and, and morally um, sound, um, just sort of taking that in another direction, in terms of stigmatised issues like mental health, where people consider themselves to be doing the right thing and, and, and they may be also surrounded by other communities that um, think that, that they're doing the right thing. Um, well, what, it, what do you think is a good way to sort of influence change in that sector where it's not a case of majority of the people con are concerned uh, or sort of like morally right, but just because of the history of it being so stigmatised? Or Katarina? Please. And, and panel, if you feel you've got some wisdom there. Uh, was, was that? Yep. Um, I mean, I, I have to say my expertise is not in mental health. Um, but I guess, you know, the, the research shows, again, I guess, but leading by example. Um, so that's certainly something that I would consider. But I'm not sure if the rest of the panel has anything... Perhaps we can get back to that. Matt, I want to ask you a question.
GetUp has run many campaigns on many issues, and you've got the data to see what people are actually interested in, to what they actually respond to. You know, we don't necessarily triage issues and deal with the most important and urgent first and so on and so forth. You know, anyone working with animals knows that you might get a, a bonus degree of involvement from the community because you're dealing with animals. What sort of issues create people, uh, inspire people to get involved? Um, I think there's a couple of aspects to that. I, um, I think in some ways it's around the way that we frame and message a particular campaign. So I think I read a quote by Anat Shankar Zoro, who's a um, um, cognitive linguist who works on uh, messaging and framing recently, and I'm paraphrasing, but her main point was that the current crisis in human rights that we're seeing um, globally is in part um, responsible uh, uh, because of the way that um, human rights advocates have failed to convincingly provide a values-based um, argument for why human rights are important and something to value. And I do think that sometimes we get uh, hung up on talking through technicalities, um, preoccupied um, with uh, engaging in, in a kind of dis discourse that we understand amongst each other, um, but we fail to communicate it more urgently and compellingly um, publicly. So I think, um, in part, that question can be answered um, by the way that we communicate our campaigns, communicate our values in a way that um, uh, kind of enlists people in support. I think another thing that can be considered, though, is um, uh, issues seem to uh, arrange themselves through the way that politics operates, at least in Australia, um, in a way that um, means that some of them will be hot for a period um, and others not. So I think... Um, it's always something to bear in mind uh, when our opponents are pushing a particular line um, to consider how to engage with that in a way that doesn't um, politicise a, a point that's beyond um, uh, achieving a, um, a good outcome on, I guess. So I'm thinking um, when something becomes highly politicised, um, sometimes... Uh, both sides can continue to run a, a narrative on it that it becomes, in the end, unhelpful. So I think it's something to consider when, when looking at um, the politics of the way that these issues are playing out, that sometimes we need to be more, um, I guess, uh, disruptive in the way that we shape the terms of the debate rather than kind of falling in behind um, and operating within the sphere that's kind of been allocated to us. By disruptive, what do you mean? More bold, more forthright, more confrontational? Um, yeah, I, th I think being more bold is, is, is one way to go about it and not just to... Like, I guess I can speak in the refugee and asylum seeker space most uh, from experience. Um, I feel like that's a debate in Australia where we've, in the last 15 years, seen uh, the policies and debate around people seeking asylum, people seeking safety, become more and more toxic over a period of time. So I think um, one thing that we uh, did when we were looking at that very issue was to say, well, the policies are based on uh, four, four things. So it's majority public support, so a lack of pu public uh, opposition in serious numbers to those um, uh, policies, a bipartisan support for, a, for a, a abusive policy, um, corporate engagement um, and complicity um, 
in that uh, system. And then the fourth kind of leg of the chair, if you like, the fourth leg of the chair was the permissions by the um, PNG and uh, Nauruan governments to keep the camps open. So I think rather than trying to change the discourse for how we talk in the public sphere, space about uh, people seeking asylum, in the first instance, we just targeted the most vulnerable leg of that chair. And it, I, I think with no business and abuse, what that did was it made, um, uh, still there are, it made uh, associating uh, through your business activities with the activities that are carrying on in those camps toxic. And it, to this day, there's no company willing to take on the contract in Manus or Nauru due to the reputational, financial and legal risk. So I guess what that did was it was disruptive in a way that it changed the nature of the debate because the government now is faced with the problem. They've got no one to run those camps. So they ha something has to shift. And then I guess that's opened up opportunities to have a, a discussion based more on shifting people's hearts and minds. Um, Please, Rodney. I'd, I'd, I'd like to pick up on that uh, in terms of the, the marriage equality debate, um, uh, which, is, which is a good example of what you're talking about, Matthew. The, um, the, th those forces in Australia that want to stop marriage equality from happening uh, try very hard to muddy the waters, uh, to distract attention away from the key issues of equality, of, um, of people's aspirations to have the same opportunities in life as everyone else, uh, and to make it about conflict, to make it about um, Margaret Court, uh, and uh, whether she deserves to have an arena named after her or not, which isn't the issue. Um, but uh, too often um, groups that oppose the reform, they, knowing that they have lost the debate on whether you know, two guys should be able to get hitched or not, uh, will take the public debate down these, down these paths of, uh, you know, what about the children or, or religious freedom or or uh, respecting ageing tennis stars. Um, and that's why it's so important to, to use your word, disrupt, to disrupt that by doing our best to bring it back to the personal, back to what will engage people's hearts and minds, as you said, Matthew. Um, because we know that when there is this politicisation uh, of the issue, when there's um, uh, these, these heated distractions, people turn off. LGBTI people become frustrated, their families become disillusioned about whether we can actually achieve this reform and, and, uh, and um, middle Australia goes, it's too hard. We always in our work have to bring it back to who is affected, why it matters to them uh, and to remind people that it's an urgent reform, uh, particularly for those elderly same-sex partners who want to marry before they die. Um, those personal stories I've found in my experience over 30 years are crucial. I know it's a bit of a cliche when people say, oh, personal stories make the difference. But in this case where, um, in the case of marriage equality where, to begin with, people didn't quite understand what the reform was, or, or now when there's people who, uh, a minority of people who are so um, stridently trying to stop the reform. Personal stories have a really, really important role to play. Uh, and we have to, as activists, 
make, as advocates, make space for those people in all of the heated debates for them to come through and talk quietly about why this matters to them. And I was, I was in Geelong uh, two weeks ago, um, and there's been a bit of a debate down in Geelong, or Surf Coast, about raising rainbow flags, whether the council should do that or not. Another heated debate that's a bit of a distraction. But at the forum that I spoke at, there were people in Geelong, from Geelong, who had really important stories to tell about why this reform mattered to them, how they'd been to visit their local MP, Sarah Henderson, a Liberal, how they changed her mind, and how they hoped, again, to push her further towards supporting a free vote in the Liberal Party. Um, and I could see that story changing, changing the narrative and giving people the hope that they needed, giving them a path forward, which on a reform like marriage equality, which majority of people support, but which still aren't ha isn't happening, is so very important for maintaining engagement, to give people a sense that there's a way forward. Rodney, I'll pause you there. I know Luke wants in on this point. So I might just follow in with Rod and Matt's point. Starting with Matt's point, he spoke about a knot, and people need to look her up and check out her work, but one of her key takeaways is that facts and science convince people of nothing. If that was the case, we would not have a debate about climate change. It would just be done. We would not have a debate about Gonski and education funding. It would just be done. Uh, what changes people's minds is which, where Rod was strongly heading towards is about storytelling. And storytelling needs great narrative arcs. You need good guys and you need bad guys and you need victims. And you need a vision, a hope for, someone, for people to head in that direction. Um, for us at Trades Hall... Um, we do a lot of campaigning. We, we want to campaign from a place of authenticity. And so when we think about it, if we want to have a conversation in a community about healthcare, it won't be me going out there talking about healthcare. It will be a nurse. And if you have a think about a debate about healthcare, if you had to trust a nurse versus a politician about what's going on in your local hospital, I know who everyone trusts. It's a nurse. So a nurse from the local Frankston Hospital hitting on homes at Frankston, having conversations at the door um, is really, really important. And it changes people's minds and it changes people's votes. The personal story, whether it's your own story or whether it's a story of your occupation, you know, firefighters talking about emergency services, you know, doctors doing the same thing, teachers talking about education. Um, and you all have that opportunity too. So you come from these amazing community organisations and you'll be absolutely trusted on the areas in which you give advice and do your work. That's the place where you need to come from. Don't come from that place of facts and science because you won't convince a soul. Tell the personal story about who you're working with. You've been very patient, folks, and if you do have a question, raise your hand. We'll get the microphone to you. Hello. We as the, we as the um, age of 16 to 25 are the first generation to feel the uh, impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. My name's Ashley and I go to school 90 minutes north of Melbourne, uh, a school called Seymour College. Myself, I have made, a, I have a committee, a small committee of committed teachers and students who are committed to changing our school to 100% renewable um, energy in the next five years. And I had some questions, I have three actually for you, Katerina. And they are, one, how do you convince non-believers uh, that climate change exists and that we are affecting our environment? Two, do you have advice on how to motivate the school on this issue? And three, do you speak at schools? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, 
You certainly made the most of that microphone Thank time. Thank you so much. <laughs> Kids got talent. And um, she's a threat to me. So uh, to answer the um, last question first, because that's perhaps the easiest, um, I can speak at schools. I'm happy to talk to you afterwards. And if I can't, then I do know of others who do both within our organisation and in other organisations. So happy to chat to you afterwards. Um, I think the first question is really interesting. It's one actually we get a lot. Um, so our, our work really is trying to help people who do understand climate change and the changes that are needed and are committed to those changes to have better conversations with the friends and family in their networks about that and get them on board so that we have the social climate that we need for the changes we need from our, the people who can deliver it, mainly in government. Um, and so as soon as people hear that, they think, well, how can I convince those deniers? But the reality is that um, polling shows that, you know, true deniers only make up about 7% of the population. So, unfortunately, a lot of them are in powerful positions. But um, change actually doesn't... I don't, I don't know if you're familiar. There's a, a theory called social diffusion theory which describes how change passes through society. And it starts with a small group of people who are called innovators. Um, they come up with an idea. They're sort of like guinea pigs. They try it out. Um, if that succeeds and the next group of people see it, they take it on, they're called the early adopters, they're like trendsetters and they're the ones who really get something going and when enough of them have taken it on board and talked to people that they know about it, the next group of people which is called your early majority take it on and they're the critical mass that you need for any change. Um, so what that really tells us about changing anything, whether it's society or your school, is that the people we need to engage are not the deniers, the people we really need to engage are the people who are the majority of the population who would say, yes, climate change is real, it's serious, we should be doing more, Australia should play a leading role, um, even at some cost. They love renewable energy. Most people in Australia would answer yes to all of those questions on a questionnaire, but they wouldn't if you asked them another, if you gave them another survey that said, um, what do you care about, what do you worry about, what do you think about, what do you talk about, what do you vote on, climate change isn't up there. Um, and so that, in, in terms of climate change, they're really the people that we need to engage and get con convince them of the need for the action that we're proposing. So I guess in my answer generally is I don't try very often to convince deniers. Um, I did once have a really interesting conversation by accident with a denier. <laughs> um, and um, to cut a very long story short, the best tool we have in that is actually to try and listen and understand those people um, and ask them questions. And um, it's amazing if you practice that, um, where the conversation can go and how um, what can often seem like a, a loggerhead can disperse. But that's, a, that's another topic that we might cover. Um, but yeah, my answer to you would actually be to, to not worry too much about trying to convince those people. We often want to convince the people who have different ideas from us, but actually the people we need to get on board are the people who are almost already there and just convince them how serious, how urgent this issue is, um, what needs to be done about it at a large scale and how they can play a part in that. So what we find is actually the biggest thing turning people off action on climate change is just that they can't see how they can play a role. And if you can paint that picture for them and give them a vision and show where they fit into that, they'll often want to get on board. And I guess those are the tools I would use in your school as well, um, but also happy to chat with you afterwards. There's a hand up by, oh, a couple of hands in the very front row. And as the microphones are making their way to you, I'll throw a question to the panel. You know, we 
say that politicians and policymakers are poll-driven. In fact, we sort of downgrade them for being so poll-driven, yet there are some issues out there, big fat ones, I'm thinking of physician-assisted dying or voluntary euthanasia, marriage equality, um, maybe even overpopulation, where there is significant, long-term, quite overwhelming public, a public view in one direction, and yet they still do not move in that direction. What gives? Roddy, I'm particularly um, interested in your view on this. Well, on, on marriage equality, uh, they are slowly giving. Um, we've seen uh, a, a slow build-up in numbers uh, of supporters in our federal parliament over the last few years that lags behind but corresponds to increases in popular opinion. Um, and uh, to the point now where there's a majority in both houses. So if the Liberal Party allowed its members to vote in favour, it'd pass tomorrow. Uh, and that is the block. That, that, that is why it doesn't happen. Um, so we can see that there has been progress, and the progress has been largely because of the personal storytelling that we've emphasised so much today already. Um, the remaining blocks, I guess, when I look at those countries that have achieved marriage equality already through through legislative action and not just through a, a Bill of Rights. Uh, the crucial element that they had that we lack is leadership at the top. Now, of course, Malcolm Turnbull supports marriage equality, but he obviously doesn't think it's important enough for him to risk, take a risk on. Um, Julia Gillard was the same. Uh, it's not a partisan thing. Uh, we've lacked that, um, that strong, courageous leadership at the top. Uh, and that has meant that we've just had to work stronger from below. Uh, when historians look back on the marriage equality campaign, they'll see it was almost entirely a bottom-up campaign. Mm. Um, and even if we, are to, if we are to achieve marriage equality in this term of government, it will be because there are backbenchers uh, in all of the parties with the goodwill and the courage to work together to get legislation through. It's not impossible. I think it can happen. Um, but it'll be because of those backbenchers uh, who uh, work together uh, and, and achieve the reform. And, and I've been in situations before where that's happened. In, you mentioned Tasmania, uh, which was the last state to decriminalise homosexuality. That was actually achieved under a, a Liberal government mm. um, in the state least likely to succeed on gay rights uh, because people worked across the parties together to achieve reform. I've seen it happen again, and I'm hopeful. I've seen it happen before. I'm hopeful it'll happen again. Roddy, I'll move it on, because I, and all panels, I, I want to get um, as many questions addressed as possible, so we'll have to compact our responses. Quick responses from the two of you, please. Yeah, just, just quickly on polls. Polls are not enough to convince a politician to do anything, mm. um, and especially just a single poll. Um, politicians are primarily interested, I suppose, in remaining a politician, so no one's surprised by that. And then remaining in government, but not for everyone. You would have seen Elbow the last fortnight think about something else. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when you think about an individual poll, it's not enough. They're worried about will that issue move enough votes to flip their seat? Then you've got something of a poll you could worry about. But they're also interested in internal solidarity, um, advancement, like internal party ramifications, if not. So it's, it's, it's multi-layered. Um, you know, majority of Australians support the death penalty. Well... That's not going to change because you know there's there's not enough there's not enough heat behind it to actually flip a seat. 
you wish. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I was going to say something similar, that basically just because something is um, supported by the majority, it's not enough unless that majority is actually prepared to vote on that in the end. Um, and I think there are different reasons for that for different issues and different solutions for that, and a lot of it is about strategy as well, as we've heard. Um, on climate change, um, I think it's a bit more complex than that. Um, so climate change is one of those issues the vast majority of people say that they want stronger action and yet we're not seeing it from our politicians. Um, and in fact, you know, what really, I guess, got me into the work that I do is watching the carbon tax debate unfold. And at that point, when the carbon tax was first um, proposed, 60% of people actually supported it, believe it or not. Um, and throughout that debate, the majority of people still believed that climate change was real, serious, urgent, that we should do something about it. And yet, um, the, you know, that was clearly became a very toxic issue and people actually, you know, seemed to actually vote against it, even though they believed that we should be doing something about climate change. And I, I remember hearing often at, at that time, oh, I believe we should be doing something about climate change, just not that. Um, and, you know, every time... And the reality is that to fix climate change, we are going to have to make changes that are not going to be comfortable for people. Um, they are going to cost money, they are going to be disruptive. We cannot fix this problem. And Catherine, uh, that You're interests gonna... <laughs> me because and I, I'm a working social marketing, everyone talks about the power of stories and I have a limited faith in stories. I must be frank and I know that's counter to your views and experience. But stories are all great until the suggested remedy hurts me in terms of school choice, more people on the bloody road slowing me down, paying more for electricity, although I've just spent, you know, $88 on a quick dinner, blah, blah. You know, stories are great, but, gee, there are a lot of other factors in the mix, aren't there, like yeah. status and comfort and cost and convenience. And, sir, you have a question from the floor. <laughs> I do. Dean Beck from Joy 94.9. Um, I'd like to know from you how you deal with dissent within the ranks or how you deal with... <laughs> Um, your people becoming apathetic. Um, Rodney, marriage equality has gone from one umbrella organisation to three or four. Um, Luke, you've had to deal with all sorts of dramas in the e-trades union oh, area. What are you talking about? Um, one big happy family. <laughs> <laughs> Katrina, I don't know whether you've planted trees in the wrong spot or something, but how do you deal with um, dissent within your ranks and keep your own people on board? Oh, good, I'll start then. Um, you crushed them. So, yeah, we, from time to time... Well, this is a broad church, right? Um, unions are democratic organisations. Uh, their leadership is voted on by the rank and file. Um, but from time to time, you know, we... You know, this is like the bad apple question. Well, yeah, we've got a few of them. Um, and what we do is... both the cleaners, the security guards and the hospitality people, they're paying $12 a week, they're on some of the lowest wages and they're doing that to improve their working lives. Um, so if anyone you know, falsely takes a dollar or doesn't do a bargain that improves their working life, like, we need to crush them. Um, and, that's, and that's what we go about and do. Now, that, that might seem, you know, but see, on the other end of the scale, people talk about the CFMEU and we've got a great uh, rank and file CFMEU Remember Lisa over there, I can see her. Um, if you're working on a construction site and you know when the ABCC exists that every 10 days a worker will be killed on a construction site, which union do you want looking after your son or daughter? 
I'll tell you what, the CFMEU. And that's why their membership numbers on construction sites are through the roof. Look, I've got to ask. I'm going to ask you a yep. very tough question. Oh, how tough? They're the union that has total control over building sites, and yet that is still happening, and they have had total control for a very long time. Isn't that an argument to say, hey, CFMEU, you need to be doing something very, very differently? Well, when we talk about disruption, um, you'll see disruption from time to time on building sites, um, and that's appropriate because the laws aren't right. We don't control the laws, um, and that's a huge problem. When I can be fined you know, thousands of thousands of dollars for not producing a piece of paperwork to give 24 hours to walk onto a site when I know something is about to collapse, like, what am I going to do? Am I going to file that piece of paperwork? Or if your kids were working on that site, would you want me to get on that site quick, smart, and get it fixed? Um, so we make those tough decisions. Uh, we get penalised by the law. We then have to pay the fines, and yet the companies that do this stuff, um, you know, get away pretty much scot-free. So there was a conversation we've seen in the media recently about breaking the law. Well, sometimes the law, are wrong, law is wrong. Uh, if it was a football match, you know, we change the rules um, to make sure that, you know, the game gets played fairly. Well, we need to have that bigger conversation in Australia too. Pop quiz. We're in a pretty progressive, lefty, community-orientated room. Who here is a member of a union? Hands up. Hands up if you could be a member of a union but are not a member of that union. Just a snap poll. Hands up high. Don't worry. They can't... I've got all your faces. Yeah, that's right. I've recorded it. You can't be part of the Wildcat strike. You won't be covered. <laughs> you won't be walking with a banner down the high street. There was a question, I think, from somewhere here. I've lost it. Sorry. Do you have a question? Oh, we, is, you've, you've moved on? Fine. You'll do it one-to-one -one later. Okay, perhaps we shouldn't be using everybody's time to negotiate that right now. Okay, so I'll move on. Oh, there's a question from the floor there. And, Sonia, I want to talk about the issue of does size matter in a moment. Madam. Hello. Um, my name is Michelle and this is for Rod. I'm a marriage celebrant and at recent ongoing professional development, I was met with 50% of the room that were opposed to performing same-sex marriage, which shocked me. How will we address this once it does pass? They don't do it. That, that surprises me too. That, that was professional development with celebrants. A broad um, cross-selection of celebrants? Or were they all from South Australia? <laughs> I, it was in a small country town in northern New South Wales. It was in Grafton. So I don't know whether that has any bearing on it, possibly. But um, it really did surprise me in that when we do our training to become celebrants, we discuss discrimination and that we cannot be seen to be discriminatory. And so when these people were speaking in this way, it, it concerned me greatly. And then the other part of me thought, well, if I was in a same-sex relationship, I wouldn't want that particular person marrying me anyway. So, but, but that's the conversation. They have to ring that celebrant and talk to them to find that out. And that could be such a being crushed all over again. It just concerns me. So, yeah. There has been quite a discussion about that issue recently. Um, particularly when the government put forward legislation for marriage equality last year and it gave uh, celebrants an exemption it, it, from anti-discrimination laws if they don't want to perform same-sex marriages but only same-sex marriages and we objected to that because it was clearly discriminatory. Uh, I think a compromise that um, is being discussed now is the possibility of allowing celebrants who have a religious uh, have religious values that mean they don't want to be marrying same-sex couples, that they nominate themselves for a new category, religious celebrants, uh, and they, in that category they can perform religious ceremonies, but anyone who remains as a civil celebrant will be governed by anti-discrimination law. Um, 
that does allow right-wing conservatives to say the, the gay lobby wants to force celebrants to marry gay people, which again, doesn't that become just another distraction? Um, yes, it is potentially a distraction. They often make that claim. But the response, I guess, is that uh, we will not be... When I say we, I'm basing this on surveys that have been done in the LGBTI community. Yep. Overwhelmingly, LGBTI people say we don't, don't want trade-offs in return for marriage equality. We don't want holes punched in anti-discrimination anti law for uh, civil celebrants or bakers or florists or whomever who currently are governed by those laws so that they can turn us away. Now, of course, no one wants to be married by someone who doesn't want to marry them. Uh, but as soon as we start punching holes in anti-discrimination law to allow marriage equality to get through, where does it end? Mm. Um, particularly if those holes are punched in the name of religious conscience. And we've seen in the United States where these kinds of religious freedom laws have already begun to be applied beyond the LGBTI community to interracial couples and others. Um, I think we should be proud of our anti-discrimination regime in Australia and try and keep that solid. If it's... OK, can I just quickly respond to that point about divisions um, that was raised before. Uh, there are different groups now um, campaigning for marriage equality and that was because last year of course the government put forward a plebiscite and different people had different views on whether we should go down that path. Um, I have been involved in this stuff for 30 years and I've seen what deep, deep damage is caused by, within minority communities, by fratricide. Um, or sororicide, not to be sexist about it. Um, and I certainly would not want to see that happen again. And I'm glad that in the marriage equality movement, even though people are taking different paths, um, that we tend to be working together and respect each other's uh, work. Uh, and I think actually that's a good example of how communities can, people in communities can pursue different uh, strategies, take different actions, but work relatively well together. Um, and I don't know anyone in our community who would want to, at particularly at this critical time, um, begin some kind of civil war. That's not what it's about. It's about ensuring that we get to marriage equality, having explored every possible option, every possible strategy. From the floor, directly in front of me, sir. Um, yeah, Rodney spoke about it, I think just touched on it briefly, but I was wondering how much of an impact the media makes on these progressive issues, um, so much so that they're giving kind of equal voice or equal airtime to, say, the 6% of climate change deniers or the minority of people who disagree with, um, with same-sex marriage, are they actually hindering that in their, in their efforts to, I guess, give equal, equal voice to all different sides of the issue? Um. From my point of view as an advocate, there's two things to consider there. Firstly, yes, uh, the other side will always have their voice heard, so that's inevitable. So who should be the person speaking on our side, if you like? And wherever uh, I can, I try and make sure that it's people who have a close, intimate, personal connection to the issue who can talk about why it matters to them. Uh, so it's not just some, you know, advocate from... Uh, uh, who belongs to an organisation, but someone with a personal story. And it's also really important um, that we consider the role of local media in this debate. Some of the most important people in the marriage equality debate 
in Australia are people whose names you wouldn't know and you will never know because they're working at a local level. Um, I'll mention Geelong again because that's where I was most recently. There's a woman down there, Sharon Faulkner, who um, has been instrumental in getting local politicians across the line, getting local businesses up in support of marriage equality, getting the Geelong advertiser to, to adopt an editorial policy in favour of marriage equality. Um, and her work has moved that community to a new place. Um, that's what really matters in this debate. You know, a, 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 a slanging match on the project between Margaret Court and Waleed Ali isn't necessarily going to change anything. But people like Sharon are changing things in local media and I do my best to try and focus on that local media because of its importance. Luke. I think you're right about the proportion argument and that weighting should be given. It isn't, but it should be. Um, but the media matters less and less. Like, the number one news source for people on uh, under the age of 30 is they get that through social media. It's, it's either through Facebook and Twitter. Get up here, we'll have a mailing list. I don't know, what, what's it, one point what now? One point... Uh, 1.1? Yeah, 1.1 million. We've got 1.6 million members. Um, you know, change.org, I think, you know, we hate them. But anyway, don't ever use them. We'll talk about that later if you like one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> but it's got, you know, you know another 1.3 million. Like, we can talk directly to our members, unfiltered conversation, and get them to take action. Um, why would I want to always go through the media and have someone interpret the words I want to say and then put a spin on it and then get a counterpoint of view? Like, you've all got membership lists. Um, how you use them, how you value that, how you avoid spamming them, like that is just super important to engaging your volunteers to make change. Karen. Um, I want to add to that. Um, the, it's true, the media is a key part in that and it's frustrating, but also um, the social um, diffusion theory that I talked about earlier also talks about how change passes through that curve. And it tells us that although people hear information in mass media and now social media and in campaigns, um, a lot of that information sits somewhere in our heads and it's not until we have a conversation with someone that we know and we trust that we process that information and we decide are we going to take it seriously, believe it, how are we going to respond to it, what are we going to do about it and so that's why it is so important for all of us who care about all of our issues to learn how to have those better conversations with the people who trust us um, about the issues we care about and get them on board. Hands up, who's changed an opinion on something of significance in the last 12 months? They're hard to change, and I think even most of the people with their hands up are lying. So, <laughs> I, just, no, I do think sometimes campaigners do believe that people's opinions can be changed through various means and methodologies and based on science or based on messaging, but gee whiz, I know selfishly maybe I'm the only one in the room. I kind of got my set of opinions. It's a suite. You know, it's an ensemble. You know, it's one of a piece. And occasionally I may change something. And I don't know if it's that conversation with a friend or if it's that media report or if it's a social media tweet. Madam. Um, I want to ask Matthew how we genuinely change the narrative around refugees and asylum seekers. Mm. The focus is on, rightly on Nauru and Manus Island. But there's thousands of people on bridging visas living in our communities who are really in dire straits. And, you know, people who are working in the community, in humanitarian settlement services, in other support services, have to deal with the the desperation of people on a daily basis. Mm. So how do we change that? We, we, you know, we march the streets and that does nothing really. Mm. How do we genuinely shift the community in terms of having a more humane approach to people in our society? 
Thank you for that question. I think it's really timely. Just last week, Peter Dutton, um, he's gone on a rampage, I think, and he's really targeting those 7,500 people who are currently living in our community, seeking safety in Australia, but who have been um, prevented from applying uh, for asylum or protection in Australia for up to five years. So many of them weren't allowed to even um, apply for a visa. Uh, until uh, late last year, and now Peter Dutton has um, announced an arbitrary deadline of, of the 1st of October, um, whereby those people need to fill out very complex forms that require legal assistance with an overloaded uh, burden on legal centres that are providing this advice um, pro bono. Um, and if they don't uh, fulfil those um, requirements um, by the 1st of October, um, the government is threatening to deport them back to harm. Um, and to cut off their access to any kind of support services in the community. So I think it's a timely question. Um, we've launched a, a campaign called Fair Process, which looks to shift in the first instance that date to get the government to, to lift that date. Um, it's arbitrary and it's cruel. And then to put in place a, a fair process for people seeking safety in Australia. I, I think for us it goes back to this... Um, Thing around uh, telling stories um, and the government's been very clever in the way that it, uh, in terms of offshore detention has um, sought to uh, prevent us even seeing the people that its policies impact. Um, but in terms of the people in Australia I think they've been here for five years. Their, their children go to our schools, they, they work in our businesses, um, they study in our universities um, they have lives here and they are part of our community and I think there is something to be said about working with those people in whatever way they can to talk about what Australia means to them, to talk about what their attachment to our community is because I really do believe that the majority of Australians wouldn't tolerate that treatment of people if they felt a basic human connection with them. And I think the government's put in place all sorts of crafty ways to avoid us establishing that, that human connection. Um, but I think that's the challenge ahead of us in the next few months, is to um, tell the story of those people in a way that um, uh, Australians from all parts of our community can relate to them. Um, because I, I really don't think that they would stand by and let the government put in place such an unfair process if that was the case. Sonia. Um, I think it's a really important question and I think that um, the government does a tremendously good job of narrowing the entire migration debate down to one uh, extremely important but, but actually relatively narrow issue um, and with the result that the whole gamut of people, a whole gamut of people is demonised um, and we don't really have much comeback on that. Um, the vast majority of migrants living in our community now are here on a temporary basis. They've got very few uh, rights and they're significantly exploited in our community, either here as, as uh, temporary workers or as international students. And slowly we're starting to demonise some of them through our media and through our conversations mm. um, as well. And, there's, and they are terribly important to our economy for all kinds of reasons. Most of our kids wouldn't be able to go to university without the fees that international students are bringing in. It's Victoria's biggest or second biggest export now? Biggest. Biggest. Really important. But the, the issue on the other side of the coin we're not interested in having. I would say go back to um, 
some of those grassroots stories in those grassroots ways of interacting with people, whether it's through a community hub or through your local welcome dinner or through something that's going on in your community, and that becomes, that changes what the face of migration is. When you sit down and have a conversation with somebody or talk to somebody, that makes the face of migration a real personal interaction, not just a story and not just something that we, we did up for a PR agency um, online. And it, it'll change the, the way everybody feels about this. The, the other thing, since I've got the microphone tiny, is that not everything, this is about government, marriage equality is about government, not everything's regulatory. Sometimes it's up to us to make a change in the way we behave or the way we do things, whether it's climate change or whether it's extending a hand of welcome to somebody. And it's not actually... We can bypass an awful lot of that political process if we stop being so hung up on what they're saying about each other, because that's all they're talking about. Talking about each other, they're not talking about us half the time. And leave the airspace to the issues that really do need regulatory change. But the rest of us, I think, in the meantime, could be getting on and just getting on with the change in our communities. I'm bravely, it always happens, there's a flurry of last-minute breaking questions. Madam, I'm sorry, folks, you, this question will have to be our last because I have a pretty big question to throw to the panel yes. to close. So quick responses, quick question. Madam. I, I was glad that you raised the issue of local media That's all I've got time recently. For. My question is... <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to float that we, we have not yet to this morning, as far as I can remember, mentioned the other level of government, which I think is the grassroots level of government. And I think it's really important that in all of these conversations we keep remembering that local government is the one that's closest to the people and that often that's where the power and the, um, the, the, the energy of community and the choices that community wants to be making as a whole come from. So can you reflect a little maybe on, on what local government has to contribute to your particular fields? Local government has been... Uh, played a critical role in the marriage equality debate um, with now 50 or 60 municipalities and cities across Australia passing motions in support. Uh, and those debates on those motions have often sparked debates in those local communities that wouldn't have happened otherwise um, because they're not capital cities, they're not, um, they're not uh, places where people think those kinds of decisions are usually made. But suddenly it's, a lo it's an important local issue. It's about inclusion in the local community. Um, so, yeah, that's been absolutely absolutely crucial. We hear a lot about companies that support marriage equality, etc. But again, I think when historians look back, they'll look at local government as being one of the drivers of the debate. Panel, what is the next big issue that's going to inspire mass action and great disruption? Is there a group in the community that just hasn't found its campaigning mojo out there? Uh, treaty. That'll be the next big campaign. Uh, treaty. treaty. Sorry. So the uh, report came out from the Heart of the Nation. Treaty is going to be a massive campaign. Um, I worry it's oh. going to be a divisional campaign. Uh, oh. Marriage equality is still going to be a huge campaign. That's not going away. Secure employment for workers. So the casualisation that you and your kids are facing is, is unbelievable. Uh, Great Barrier Reef. And then last one, I'd say in 10, 15, 20 years' time, Republic. I guess I'd add to that that... Um, I think uh, when you look at Australian society, there's well over 25% of the population um, that don't speak English at home as their, their first language. And I feel like it's, it's related to this migration debate, is that that group of people is largely ignored um, by our politicians. And I think um, those uh, communities are based across marginal seats all across the country. So I think 
um, there will be a, um, a consolidation uh, and an activation of, of, of those groups. Um, I also suspect some of those groups are much more conservative than the progressive left likes to acknowledge on perhaps. a lot of social issues. Yeah, perhaps, but I think when they feel like their rights are being, they're under attack mm -hmm. and they're being treated like a political football, I think what we've seen through um, the latest attempt at um, uh, attacking 18C and the Racial Discrimination Act was a real kind of consolidation um, amongst those communities. And I think the recent citizenship changes that have been announced have had um, widespread uh, rejection by um, uh, multicultural communities in Australia. So I think um, the government and political parties in general can't continue to treat uh, communities like political footballs. Thank you, Matthew. Any thoughts on um, issues? In terms of the LGBTI issues, definitely uh, issues and, and human rights for transgender people will be an, uh, is a coming issue. I mean, it's already here in terms of debates about uh, transgender young people in schools. But um, most of the countries that have moved on to marriage equality have found that that's the issue that breaks out after, mm. that that's the issue that really people, excites people's imaginations. And more broadly, um, a, human rights, a Human Rights Act or Human Rights Charter so there's, um, there's movement in Tasmania and Queensland uh, and I think soon in WA for state-based acts or charters and uh, I would expect to see movement nationally as well. So that's a, that's a coming issue. Um, actually, I don't know if these will be campaigns but I think they need to be. Um, and actually they're really crucial to all of our campaigns and all of our issues and they're related. So I wanted to read something that someone posted on Facebook just the other day in my feed. Um, I was at a panel discussion tonight on the alt-right um, with four amazing writers. Gender was brought up, great points were made. It was a valuable discussion to have. Race was brought up, great points were made and there was a valuable discussion. The same was true when sexuality was discussed. So far we're doing well. Class wasn't mentioned once by the moderator or the panellists. A lone question from the audience brought it up. Only one panellist responded. They shut it down immediately and implied that it, wasn't, it was almost racist to bring it up. Apparently discussions about class aren't possible without bringing, bringing up whiteness. Um, I'm not necessarily endorsing all of this, but I think it's a really interesting thing that um, more and more when I look at any... When I talk to friends and they're interested in a whole range of issues and I hear their stories about what they're campaigning on and what the barriers are, um, so many issues come up it seems to all go back to me to neoliberalism um, and I think that is also that issue that is bringing up this big class divide and, and that class divide is playing out in our partisan politics and I think we have to get better at understanding that um, issue, how it has come about. Neoliberalism is not just something that eventuated, it was a very conscious project um, since the 1930s I think. Um, when the Mont Pelerin Society was first established. Um, I'm only just getting my head around it, but I think we really have to start... Um, George Monbiot has written a really interesting article about it being an invisible hand. In, in When communism was a force, people knew what communism was and they could talk about it and discuss it and fight against it if they wanted to, but we don't... Most people wouldn't even know what neoliberalism means. I don't think I fully understand it, but I think it is at play in all of our issues and it's something we have to understand, we have to name, and we have to fight against. I'm glad you Do you, you really agree. know why you're <laughs> applauding? Fine. Ladies and gentlemen, with time against us, please thank our panellists. Rodney Croom, Sonia Hood, Luke Hilakari, 
Katrina Gator and Matthew Phillips. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.